Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we talk about storytelling in the face of the greatest story of all time, climate change. I'm Mariana Ease Hegler. And I'm Amy Westervelt. Our last few episodes, in case you missed them, were yearly recaps from 2016 to 2019. And in this, our first episode of 2020, we'll be taking a critical eye to the climate story as it's unfolded over the first month of this new decade. Yeah, and I gotta say, I thought this was gonna be a lot lighter to go from doing one month instead of a full year. But the climate story legit has no chill. So this episode is almost as jam-packed as the other ones. I know. Yeah, but lucky for us, we have a special guest, Mira Subramanian, to help us sort through it all. Yes, I'm really excited to talk to her. Mira is a longtime climate journalist, and she was just elected as the board president of the Society for Environmental Journalists. So she has a lot of thoughts on how climate journalism has evolved. Also, in this episode, we'll be digging into listener questions that folks have been sending us. Yes. Also note that all the articles we talk about here are linked, as always, in our Twitter, at Real Hot Take, and in the show notes. Yep. And please make sure you're following us there as well. Okay. Ready to get started? Yep. Let's do it. Mira, thanks for being here. Great to be here. (laughs) Welcome, Mira. So our first question for you is, can you talk to us a little bit about your path to climate storytelling? Sure. I became interested in the environment a very long time ago. I was Mm. 19 and traveling around the world. And for some reason, even though the world was imploding, like Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union was about to collapse and Yugoslavia was breaking out into war and... Mm -hmm. um, uh, Tiananmen Square had just happened. Uh, so all these like monumental political events were happening, but I just became hyper focused on the garbage that we were dumping off the back of the ship that I was traveling on. So mm. I, I became um, fascinated by just the impact of the environment on people's lives. And so I actually got into nonprofit environmental work for mm-hmm. all through my 20s. And I lived out in Oregon. I was working at a sustainable living skills and research education center. So mm-hmm. we were doing very hands-on work, you know, living on the land, living very close to the land and figuring out how things work and how people can connect to their natural world. And then I, I got very burnt out on nonprofit work and was increasingly writing. And so yeah. um, that's what shifted me to going to NYU journalism school in my early 30s and mm-hmm. basically writing about the same stories, but getting to let the journalism and the facts of what I was finding uh, allow me to write much more complicated, much more messy stories. Yeah. Yeah. I relate mm. to that almost a little bit too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because nonprofits, I, I love nonprofit uh work, but you have to say a certain thing. And um, I felt like the stories were way more complicated. And I, and I trusted that readers would be able to decipher that for themselves. Mm-hmm. 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 
Yeah. Yeah. That means I've made some like uh, enemies, you know, back home. <laughs> I'm not I'm not towing the line, but I'm I'm not here to make friends. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to ask like maybe it's an obvious question, but you are you're the head of the Society of Environmental Journalists as resident non-journalists on the show. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should know about this organization. So the Society of Environmental Journalists is an organization. It's a nonprofit. I, I guess I am back in the nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a nonprofit that's been around for 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, was sort of cutting edge. Like somebody just said, oh, you're, you've been interested in the environment for 30 years? Like I thought it was like a five-year-old thing. No. Wow. Yeah. Right. And so there have been a it was started by a group of journalists from National Geographic, The Washington Post, um, who really just wanted to create a, a, an organization that supported the work of people who were writing about the environment. And so mm-hmm. it's been around for 30 years. It has a flagship conference that happens every year. This year is going to be in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. We go to far-flung places that a lot of times conferences don't go to. Uh, we were in Flint, Michigan a couple years ago. Um, mm-hmm. We were in Fort Collins, Colorado last year. And we do um, the other great thing about this conference. It's about 800, 900 working journalists for the most part that are there. You're learning things, you're networking at the conference, and then there's field trips, which are awesome. Mm. So you're getting out into the geographic region that we're in, learning about water issues and climate issues and agriculture and nuclear energy and all these different aspects. And so it's it's a very hands-on conference. So that's a big part of it. But then the whole rest of the year, there's all these resources. There's mm-hmm. mentorship programs. Uh, we have the Fund for Environmental Journalism. So that's actually getting money to, into reporters' hands so they can go report on these stories. Uh, we have an award series. So so for all the great climate writing that's out there, you know, submit those for the awards and you can get uh, recognition for for that work. So um, it's really just fostering our official statement is that we're strengthening the quality, reach and viability of all forms of media that advance public understanding of environmental issues. Mm-hmm. And our membership is at an all time high. And I feel like part of that is just that there's real deep recognition of how much environmental stories are not separate anymore. Yeah. I think for a long time. Um, they felt like they were. And um, I, I just, I, we just had a big event in DC. I got to introduce Ban Ki moon. It was qu- quite amazing. And we had mm-hmm. a, a great panel of journalists talking about everything that was going to come in the year ahead. And um, something that I said there in my introductory statements is that we're used to seeing stories about clean water and clean air and, yeah. you know, the science section. Those are environment stories. But but now they're in every section. They're in the arts section um, uh, mm-hmm. and they're in the business section. Um, and so I was saying that they're front page stories. You know, they're every page stories. They're yeah. everywhere stories yeah, and everybody's stories. Like yeah. that is there's no separating this anymore. No, it's the story. Um, Amy, you're part of SEJ, right? I sure am. Yes, proud longtime member. I love SEJ. Yeah, I love it. I find the conferences really helpful too, um, not just for for subject matter, but just like connecting with other people that are in the same field and, you know, seeing people you haven't seen for 10 years and all that kind of stuff. It's good. So many freelancers, right? It's the largest contingent yeah. within our group. So, I mean, for me, like just having that um, camaraderie and connections and networking all happen is so is so powerful when you don't have yeah. a newsroom, you know? Yeah. You need that yeah. support group. Yeah, totally. Mira, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the climate storytelling world? Things that excite you, um, even, you know, different different approaches, different types of writing. What are you seeing? Yeah, it's an exciting time, kind of a transformative time. I think everyone on this beat is kind of amazed at how much this is becoming relevant in a way that that it wasn't seen as relevant before. Mm -hmm. It was always relevant, but whether people 
perceived it that way um, was kind of missing. And I think in some ways, like, like right, like Amitav Ghosh wrote The Great Derangement. And that came out in 2016. And that yeah. was kind of like a, 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 like, where are the artists? Where's the creative response to this crisis? Like, this is, um, you know, in so many ways, not dealing with climate change is like a failure of imagination, mm-hmm. right? Because we have to, f- we have to imagine a very different world than the one that we inhabit now. Yeah. You did this amazing uh, series about the perceptions of climate in conservative America and inside climate news. And then you did this beautiful culminating essay in Orion magazine. Um, And I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to read a quick excerpt from it. And then we can talk about some of the more fascinating things you learned from the series. Okay, so this was uh, this was from a piece for Orion that I wrote in December. Sometimes I allow myself to wonder if the extreme weather events, the droughts, the fires, the dying cattle, withered peaches, could unite us, everybody, everywhere, as we wrestle with the first truly global crisis. Could the shared catastrophe be akin to gazing at that first iconic image of Earth from the Apollo 8 spacecraft in 1968? Oh, that's where we live. There because no wearable would be left untouched. This isn't the Irish potato famine where you could set sail for America. This isn't the Dust Bowl where you could move on to California. California is on fire. America is on fire. The planet is on fire. Mm. And when did you publish this again? This just came out in December. Um, So this was an Orion essay that was Basically, I had worked for about a year and a half before that in 2017 and 18 um, for a Mm -hmm. nine-part series for Inside Climate News about uh, perceptions of climate change in conservative America. And so that took me all over the country. And so I wrote all these individual stories about individual subjects and geographies and and people and places. Um, But there was this kind of like big overarching Mm -hmm. takeaways that came from doing all that um, that I just – I sat with it for a really long time, and then this this Orion essay was at least just a beginning of trying to um, like unpack it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved that series. I thought it was so great, and and especially because you um, you told engaging stories. You know, it wasn't the sort of I think I I talked about how at that time there was this sort of Trump apology tour happening in the media, you know, where everyone was like, oops, sorry, we forgot about half the country, you know, and like, (laughs) and I thought you did such a good job of sidestepping that, but, but bringing really important um, stories and perspectives to the the conversation. It was great. Yeah. 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 You know, there, there are the journalists who fly in and they go to the diner and they talk to you. Right. Right. And so I was parachuting to some degree. Because, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd only spend a week in a place. I wasn't living there and I wasn't from there. But I did just, like, hang around on Main Street. And, mm-hmm. you know, something happens in small towns that's um, that's kind of amazing where people, like, don't want to talk to you. But then they keep talking to you and then yeah. they're inviting you to the barbecue. And it's just, like, there is um, there is just an openness that I think we think isn't there mm-hmm. um, because we hear so much about – um, about the anger, and I wrote about this in the Orion piece too. Is like like one of the fly fishermen that was a very like soft spoken, very conservative, but believes climate change is happening. Believes we should take action. Um, wonders where all the conservatives went in his party. You know yeah. that used to protect the mm-hmm. land so that he could go out there and fly fish every day. And um, you know, I just I wrote in Orion like he you, we do not hear his voice. Like he just, right. he's not angry, yeah. he's not mad, he's not screaming, and those voices are not heard on on the right or on the left. Right. Where do you see climate storytelling going in the next year? What's your hot take? 
see what I did there. Take. Yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I think we're all amazed at how much climate change writing has um, infiltrated Mm-hmm. All angles within the arts, fiction, within long form journalism, mm-hmm. every, everybody is stepping into the space. Yeah. Sometimes for good and for bad, but yeah, but yeah. everybody is, is is stepping into the space in terms of all these different views being told. But one angle that seems to still be missing to me is again thinking about that conservative right and the and the fact that you know the people that I was meeting like they are on the front lines of climate change. Yeah, right. They are farmers and they are people who live close to the land in rural America. And they are feeling the impacts arguably much more than us sitting here in this room. So I want to hear those voices coming from them. Yeah. And that would be that would be amazing. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of season two of Drilled, um, Amy's other podcast Mm -hmm. um, that is just backing you should be subscribed to it. I think that's where you uh, talk to the fishermen. Yeah, it was really interesting just to really, I don't know, to hear them talking about it and get out on boats with them, although I got really seasick. <laughs> but, but just like see how that whole world works, you know, and hear like there was a young deckhand that I talked to who was like, you know, had grown up in a fishing family on the East Coast and now he was on the West Coast and he was just kind of talking about how like, when his dad got started, you could make a decent living as um, as a deckhand and, like, work your way up to being a captain and all that kind of stuff. And that that's gone now. And I don't know, just all these ways that the environmental stuff overlaps with the economy and, and also kind of this historical and cultural stuff, too. Like, there are these little fishing communities all across the country that are changing dramatically because the fish are moving. I think it's no longer true that conservative and climate deniers synonyms. No. You're starting to see that like the that sort of conservation ethic coming back into into play, I think. And there's also like a religious thing that's happening too where I think there are some religious groups that are coming back around to the idea of like stewardship and yeah, all that stuff. So, big news. Hot Take has its first sponsor, and I don't know that we could have asked for a better one. Our first sponsor is a company called Osco Finlayson, and they make the best coats on earth. And I'm not just saying this because they're sponsoring us. I would say this with <laughs> with or without. So this coat is fucking amazing, y'all. Like, I'm someone who does not like winter. I'm someone who does not like being cold. And I got this coat right before it got really cold here in New York. And it's like, you know, 20 something degrees outside when I normally would just not go outside. I'm like strolling (laughs) around the city, running errands. Everybody else is like walking all fast and I'm just like chilling in my new coat. Oh, that's nice. That is nice. <laughs> it is freaking amazing. And I, I keep like talking about how great it is because Amy has not gotten hers yet. And I have mine and I'm just like, first of all, let's talk about these pockets, okay? Like there's pockets all over the place. Pockets mean a lot to me, all right? Because I wear a lot of dresses and that means I don't have pockets because the patriarchy is real. And there's like six, seven pockets here. Like I could sell knives in these coats. <laughs> 
They're amazing. Watch out, folks. Watch out. <laughs> I'm going to get yeah. a new side hustle. But anyway, they're also really super sustainable and climate conscious. And their whole mission is to keep the North cold. And as much as... I love that. Exactly. Like, as much as I don't like being cold, I do think the North should stay cold. I do think that's the thing that should happen. So mm-hmm. please go to oscofinleyson.com. That is A-S-K-O-V-F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N.com to get a code now while it's still winter. Okay, I'll just take us through like a few top level disasters here. And keep in mind, these are just the ones we know about. There's definitely others. Of course, everyone, I hope, has heard about the massive bushfires in Australia. We lost more than a billion animals. I also heard that it doesn't even include livestock. So like if you had cattle or horses, that's not included in this billion animals. Right. And and distinct. I mean, Australia has such a distinct ecosystem that there are animals that only are endemic to that to that continent that yeah. will be gone. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that there's risk of like what this is what extinction looks like is when you have a population that just gets hit so hard that it it cannot recover. Right. As far as humans, uh, the death toll is 33 and counting the last time I checked. Um, that also includes three American firefighters who died in a in a plane crash trying to fight the fires. Um, it's burned some 27 million acres of land so far because the fire is still going. The fires are still going. It spawned fire natos, ash rain, dust storms, and smoke so intense that it created its own weather, like lightning. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're predicting a heat wave this week in um, New South Wales again, which is where the bulk of the fires were. Yeah. Uh, so what's sad is like we... I, in our climate bubble, I feel like we saw a lot about the Australia fires, as well we should. I'm not sure that most other people did who don't live in our in our bubble. It's definitely not been coming up in a lot of conversations I've had with other non-climate people. But even sadder than that is that there's all these other disasters that we really didn't hear much about. And I'll start with the floods in Jakarta and in, in Indonesia. So this disaster unleashed right around the same time as the Australia fires. At least 67 people Mm -hmm. have died in the floods and dozens have washed away in the resultant landslides. And I'm emphasizing at least because I have been really struggling to find any articles written on this. Most of what I've seen has been about from the beginning of January. But it was the heaviest downpour in a 24-hour period, and that's since record-keeping began. <laughs> and wow. it's really put the, the country's inequality in the spotlight as the slum neighborhoods are especially vulnerable not only to the flooding, they're also often located near where wastewater is kept. And when that releases, it's in, like, it can release all sorts of diseases, and it's just like really dangerous. Again, I can't tell what the, what the state is currently in Jakarta because there's just so little coverage. Like I know the fires are still going on in Australia. I don't know if the floodwaters have receded in Jakarta. So if you know, please tweet at me. Um, there was a pretty good article about this by Rachel Ramirez and Gris. It's not just Australia, and she sort of profiled the Indonesian um, disaster in it. There was also Typhoon Ursula in the Philippines that made landfall on December 24th and killed at least 47. And I don't know what the state of recovery is because, again, there's been very little updates on that. And I know that there was also a volcano that erupted in the Philippines this month. And even when I was reading about the volcano, 
there was very little written on it. And none of the stories I read about the volcano talked about how the the country's still reeling from this horrible typhoon. And how does that interact with the disaster of the volcano? I couldn't find anything about that. And if I'm not looking in the right places, please tweet at me. And I would love to look in the right places. There was also the earthquakes in Puerto Rico, which is not necessarily climate change, but it interplays with it since the island is still reeling from Hurricane Maria. So this was a magnitude 6.4 earthquake and knocked out water for 300,000 people and power for 93% of the island because the grid has not recovered from Maria. And unlike Maria, a lot of, there was just no warning for this. I was reading about, you know, a lot of folks from Puerto Rico saying like, we definitely knew that something else was going to happen at some point, but we didn't expect it to come from the earth. We expected it to come from the sky. Mm, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Because all these natural disasters like do keep happening. And I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm super picky when I'm writing about, you know, attribution and attribution science is like mm -hmm. getting better. But. I spend so much time just making sure I get that right about the attribution because, you know, like there, it is such tricky ground about what we mm -hmm. can say is from climate change. But but your point, Mary, just about how right. all these natural disasters that have happened forever and will yeah. happen forever. But when you're just, you know, it's just talking about, you know, you break your leg and then you get the flu. Like you, they interact things, with one another. Inter yeah, it's, it's, it's a compounding effect. It's not just two different things. It's yeah. They, they exacerbate each other. Yeah. So I, I did enjoy seeing the articles about uh, Puerto Rico, and they uh, all of them mentioned Maria, which was, what, 2017, 2018? 2017. But then in the Philippines, where it the typhoon had literally just happened a few weeks ago, we're talking yeah. about the volcano, and we don't mention the typhoon. Like, how? Right. I don't understand. Um, then, uh, lastly, there is the locusts and the floods in East Africa. So there is this unusually large swarm of locusts is expected, um, in East Africa in the coming months. It's already active in Kenya and Somalia and Ethiopia and pretty soon could spread to Uganda and Sudan. And this puts countries that are already suffering from severe food shortages due to extreme rain events and the resultant floods at the end of 2019, this puts them at even more risk because not only is there no food to eat or to buy, there's no way to grow the food with the locusts now. So these are... Although they are eating them. They are eating the locusts? Yeah. Well, there's a solution. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is actually, I mean, this is, you know... That's a pretty mm -hmm. climate-stable diet. Yeah. 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 I mean, not dependable year after year, but, uh, but it is a good source of protein. You know, taking locusts and making... Locust meat. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I just want to pause here and say that I, I think that we need to do, as a community, we need to do a better job at telling all of these stories. Like, of course, we need to talk about Australia, but we need to talk about Jakarta, too. We need to talk about the Philippines. We need to talk about Kenya and, and Puerto Rico and all of these other places, too. And what I see when I see these stories about the typhoons in the Philippines, for example, we talk about them as these meteorological wonders and not as human interest stories. So we talk about like the strength of the storm and we marvel at this event, but we don't talk about the people who are affected by it in the same way that we do the Australia fires or even in, in Puerto Rico, we did a better job at it. But I, I want to see that same empathy and that same humanity extended to Asia and Latin America and Africa. Yeah.
I have never been a big white wine person and especially not in the fall, but after becoming a member of First Leaf, I'm a convert. First Leaf knew exactly what types of whites to send me that felt familiar and delicious and would get me excited about trying something new. I love First Leaf because they make it easy to get personalized wine delivered on my schedule right to my door. Since I choose the day that my shipment comes, I'm never stressing out about missing a delivery, and every selection is backed by First Leaf's 100% satisfaction guarantee. I love how I just have to answer a few questions and they just know what I'll like. No more zoning out in the store looking at a hundred different bottles and trying to pick the right one. Give your palate what it really wants with First Leaf. Go to tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled to sign up and you'll get your first six hand curated bottles for just $44.95. That's T-R-Y-F-I-R-S-T-L-E-A-F.com slash drilled. Tryfirstleaf.com slash drilled. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, Earth Breeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Now we're going to transition to talking about some of the major themes and trends of the climate conversation in January. Some of these are just emerging. Others have been kind of on the rise for a while now. Um, I'm going to start with the explosion of of climate media this month, um, (laughs) which is a little bit funny because we were part of it. Um, yeah, so we launched Drilled News the, on January 21st, uh, and it's an expansion um, from the podcast out into more reporting across multiple verticals, um, accountability, journalism, looking at corporate influence on environmental policy and uh, the media, all sorts of of areas. Um, and then, you know, of course, we still have the podcast and we have um, Hot Take Podcast and we're partnering with Heated. And we're also um, partnering with a few larger outlets like HuffPost, 
Grist, New York Magazine, and a, a couple of other folks too. So, um, so that's getting going. We have some exciting co-reporting projects that we'll announce. Um, so, actually, on the same day that we launched, uh, which I didn't realize was going to happen, but was kind of awesome, uh, Bloomberg launched its climate vertical called Bloomberg Green. And a couple days before us, NPR announced its search for a climate editor to oversee expansion of its climate coverage. So that's awesome. I mean, it's really great to see that. Um, The one thing that I was like kind of thinking about, though, on that front is that, you know, we had this explosion of of climate verticals and climate media maybe like 12, 15 years ago. Right. And, and then they imploded. And they imploded. Exactly. And so and, and I think that like part of the problem there was that at a certain point, outlets were like, oh, climate should be part of everything. Yes, it should. But instead of keeping like their climate experts on and integrating them into the rest of their coverage, they just got rid of all the climate beat reporters. <laughs> And so you had you had like general assignment people trying to like jump in on climate and it just like it just yeah it didn't go well. So I'm hopeful that this time around that it will be more of uh, what you know it kind of should have been before which is that you know yes there's this climate team but they aren't just you know siloed off in the climate realm, um, they are actually, you know, bringing that lens to coverage across the board. So I've got a couple of questions. What is a vertical? And I know what a beat reporter is, but I'm not sure everyone does. Yeah, a vertical is sort of just like uh, a subject matter section. So like the climate section, the gender section, the like, Immigration section, those are all verticals um, in a newspaper or website or whatever. And then a beat reporter is someone who focuses on a particular area. So like a climate beat reporter is someone who is just focused on reporting on climate. And, you know, it's really, I don't know, it's interesting because in some ways – you know, there probably are some beats where you could reasonably say, oh, this really should just be a lens we bring to everything. Um, but with climate, I think you kind of need both because you really do need that that background and expertise to provide context to a lot of the stuff that's happening now. If you don't know that, then there's there's a lack of that context in uh, – especially for journalism. I don't think that's necessarily um, – that important for for writing essays or or even op-eds sometimes but i think for for the journalists who are trying to give people information about this stuff it's important for them to know you know why a similar initiative failed 10 years ago hey there's a yeah. can i give a shout out there was a recently um the harvard yeah. business review had a piece by gretchen gavitt called what do people really believe about climate change and so this is basically based mm. on anthony leserwitz is at the yale program on climate change communication and they've been doing surveys for a decade about mm-hmm. perceptions of mm-hmm. climate change and they're behind the um the kind of classifying Americans under like there's six Americans when it comes to climate change from like the dismissive on one end Mm -hmm. to the alarmed on the other. And so it's kind of people just fall into into the places. And, you know, the whole Inside Climate News series was finding many people like many people are in the middle. Like Mm -hmm. those, again, are the people that we're not hearing from. But they were they were Uh trying to look at all those surveys to try to figure out like, what the fuck happened? Like, right. It was go. It was concern was going up. Two thousand and eight. You know, Barack Obama comes in. We have Congress. All this, um, all of all of these things were in place that seemed like there should have been 
clear action. Um, and and this is just their analysis. So I, I, I'm not saying that this, I think that this is what happened, but this is from what them looking at this. They think, I'll, I'll just read a little excerpt from this, that what happened was that it yeah. wasn't as the much the economy or media coverage or cold weather events that make people think nothing's getting warm, but it's what we call political elite cues, which is just a fancy way of saying that when leaders lead, followers follow. The key thing that happened in that time period was the rise of the Tea Party and the strong rightward lurch of the Republican Party. Of mm-hmm. course, I'm going to add that there's this, there was a concerted effort to, to further that. And then she goes on to write, as a whole, they basically crawled out on the last twig on the longest branch away from climate science. It became a common Republican talking point that climate change is a hoax. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. My point is that the encouraging thing is that recently the alarmed category, which mm-hmm. is like the most concerned, is at 31%. Yeah, I'm in 31%. that category. I'm over there. So yeah. even back in like yeah. 2014, yeah. it was at like 11. percent So yeah. that you know, the in mm-hmm. terms of the shift of everyone, you know, the dismissives are like the same. Mm-hmm. They're they're going to stay. Then nothing's going to happen there. But yeah. there's this huge space with everybody in the middle and the people who are going from concerned to alarmed to like, let's get off of the couch and do something. So. So another uh, theme or just like an ongoing event is the Democratic primary. It's like the funnest event of the year. Like, oh, my God, so much fun. Um, (laughs) uh, So on January 14th, we had a debate. Did y'all get to watch it? Uh, No, no. If you didn't watch it, Zoya Tierstein wrote a pretty good overview of it in Gris that we'll, we'll link to. I'm the glutton for punishment. So I did watch it and I saw a really interesting thing happening. Pretty much all of the candidates were trying their best to talk about climate and to weave it into their answers. And the moderators were trying to steer them away from it. (laughs) So like one of the, like all of them brought it, Buttigieg brought it up, Warren brought it up, Sanders brought it up, Tom Steyer with his very creepy eye contact brought it up. By the time they actually got to the climate question, which was in the last, I want to say 15, maybe even 10 minutes of the debate, it was easier to identify who had not brought it up. And it was Biden and Klobuchar, by my mm-hmm. count. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, one of the like the most viral moments was when Bernie Sanders brought up climate uh, as part of a trade deal conversation. And she was like, well, we're going to get to climate. And he was like, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's like, Good for him. It yeah. totally is. And yeah. it's like, it's wild that we've gotten to the place where like now the candidates are trying to, like, the people are clamoring for climate coverage, the candidates are clamoring for climate coverage, and the news networks are just like, no. And it's, it seems very specific to broadcast news. Also, Klobuchar yeah. uh, stressed the importance of frat gas as a transition fuel. So, you know, that didn't go over too well <laughs> in the base. Folks didn't like that. Uh-huh. Um, but she uh-huh. still managed to snag the New York Times endorsement along with Elizabeth Warren because apparently you can endorse... Two people now. Really wish I'd known that. But there, there's a climate <laughs> angle in that because e- even in their endorsement, the New York Times says this about Elizabeth Warren. But Miss Warren often casts the net far too wide, placing the blame for hosts of maladies from climate change to gun violence at the feet of the business community when the onus is on society as a whole. So what do y'all think Sorry. about that? This is, again, just, just that whole conflation of these Mm -hmm. this is a this is an ongoing the straws and beef and what you eat it's just this is going to be kind of endless about until we until there's some sort of 
tipping point around structure and yeah. how people make mm -hmm. decisions. Yeah. You know, it's behavioral economics. It's basic. People make decisions based on what's yeah. easy and cheap. What's Every human mm -hmm. is like that. So yeah. there have to be structural structural mechanisms in place that make the right decision easy and cheap. Yeah. You don't have to decide to, to, to save for retirement. You you automatically, your business place puts you into retirement. And if you want to opt out, you can. Yeah. But just make it easy. Yeah. Um, and you have yeah. to think about things on a, a complete structural level to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know. It's like basic sociology. I just, I don't know if the New York Times is still the paper of record. I think they're the paper of the status quo. And they've been that way. No shade to anybody who works there. I know there's there's great people who work there on on all sides. Yeah, and they're doing yeah. they're doing they are doing great great climate coverage. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so we talked about the Australia fires a little bit before. Um, coverage of those fires provided some really interesting conversations around misinformation and climate, which is still a thing that's happening. Um, you know. Australia, Rupert Murdoch, he owns like three papers there. <laughs> and um, and he's still really pushing the climate denial thing. So there was this really high profile um, situation where a reporter at one of his papers quit News Corp over misinformation and her email went semi-viral. Um, she wrote, I have been severely impacted by the coverage of News Corp publications in relation to the fires, in particular, the misinformation campaign that has tried to divert attention away from the real issue, which is climate change, to rather focus on arson, including misrepresenting facts. I find it unconscionable to continue working for this company, knowing I am contributing to the spread of climate change denial and lies. The reporting I have witnessed in The Australian, The Daily Telegraph, and Herald Sun is not only irresponsible, but dangerous and damaging to our communities and beautiful planet that needs us more than ever to acknowledge the destruction we have caused and start doing something about it. So, um, boom. Nice one, Emily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just the hardcore Murdoch funded deniers that need to be held accountable. There's this whole spectrum of this stuff and media in general, um, has been a little bit slow to kind of wrap it, wrap our collective heads around dealing with disinformation and squaring that with, um, you know, bringing sort of, uh, you know, I'm saying objectivity in air quotes, but that's like, you know, the, the, the goal. So there was this good, there was a good piece in also in Australia, uh, John Birmingham wrote this piece uh, that he called We the Media Must Take Some of the Blame as Australia Burns. Can we ask Mira to read that one? We in the news media, or what's left of it, cannot simply treat climate change denial as we would disagreements over tax or health policy. But there is nothing legitimate about climate change denial. It has the backing of a trillion-dollar industry sector, but no actual credibility. There are no experts to hear from, no counterpoints to be made. It is all lies in the service of profit and power. One day, it will probably be a crime. Until then, however, those of us who work in the media need to take a hard look at our practices and ask ourselves whether we are really serving our audience. How do y'all feel about um, that as like long-term environmental journalists? I mean, this is a this is a really challenging thing, and uh, you know, I mean, there's there's the trying to clarify the distinction between journalists who cover the environment and environmentalists has been a long time 
Hmm. difficult territory. I mean, mm-hmm. SEJ has dealt with this where people from the outside say, oh, you're you're all environmentalists, so therefore you can't take a, you know, if you... You're too um, opinionated. Too or, opinionated, yeah. yeah. You're um, biased. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Toward the, having a living planet. Like, right, <laughs> but fucking the, monsters. But, the, but journalists have been like, uh, you know, within the organization have been very adamant that we, you know, we are journalists first mm-hmm. who are covering the environment. Yeah. And so, um, but this is tricky. I mean, I, I, I see this um, and know many, many journalists would have their hackles raised. You know, mine are raised a little bit of like mm. just the, you know, the again, the language, like the, the when the language is, it's it's very tricky ground. The language mm. is such that it, bec- it, it antagonizes and raises the blood pressures on both sides. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like sometimes that makes the schism even worse mm-hmm. as opposed to going for the tempered. But then sometimes you need the you need anger and you need um, outright uh, rebellion to make things happen. Yeah. So yeah. but it is very tricky that so many journalists who are journalists first and foremost, but are writing about the environment and perhaps lo and behold might care about the environment at the same time because they live like here right. people who are sports journalists really like sports probably i would yeah. venture to guess you know that the first you know i mean like this so yeah. there's an interest right there that's why you choose to spend your life getting yeah. paid almost no money to pursue pretty difficult stories um, yeah. but uh but it is it is really Tricky ground to tread to have people not accuse journalists who cover the environment for just being flat out environmentalists. Yeah. They're two different things. Yeah. I um my kind of um line on this, because I get like I have people often be like, oh, you know, you're biased because you're pointing out that fossil fuel companies are not behaving responsibly. But but my take on that is like if if you have the receipts then, you know. Right, because we do do that as journalists. We go out and yeah, we get totally. a lot of information and we distill it so that it is within the realm of comprehension for someone who doesn't have the time to do all the legwork that yeah. journalists are doing. So it is that, that there is a responsibility there to bring that information mm-hmm. forward. And so, yeah, if you have a c- conclusion to say, then seems like it needs to be part of the story. I mean, I'm fortunate yeah. of being being able to do long form um, writing and being able to do first person writing. You know, I, I'm a journalist who covers that territory as well. So there's it's more challenging, I think, for, uh, you know, newspaper reporters and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, this is why I'm a creative yeah, writer and true. I failed at being a journalist. Because I, I I just want to say what my opinion is all the time. I don't want to tell you what so-and-so thinks. Like, I, I struggled to, like, ask these questions that I felt were really invasive of other people. And then, like, oh, yeah. leave my That's opinion hard. at the door. I was yeah. like, no, but I think things. So, anyway. Um, further, there was even more disinformation, right? Yeah. I mean, there was, um, let's see, an independent study found online bots and trolls exaggerating the role of arson in the fires. That is unconscionable. Um, At the same time that an article in The Australian making similar assertions became the most popular on the site, which, you know, can be rigged to, it says many of those bots and trolls previously expressed support for Donald Trump. So that is not great. That's not great. And 
There, we have a nominee already for headline of the year. Um, definitely headline of the month um, from Brian Kahn in Arthur. It's not arson, you absolute fucking morons. <laughs> it's it's a work oh, of art, Brian. you know. Get get straight to the art, <laughs> the the heart of the issue. So, good job, Brian. Good job. Our new and exclusive sponsor for this episode is Asco Finlayson. Mary, did you know that they account for their carbon footprint by multiplying the social cost of carbon? No. Uh, let me repeat that. The social cost of carbon. And then they give 110% of that amount to leading edge solutions to the climate crisis. Huh. This is amazing. It is. It's amazing. Like most, most carbon offsets do a sort of one-to-one, you know, we emitted this much, therefore we will offset that much. Mm-hmm. These guys are looking at really the true cost of carbon yeah. because it's a more accurate measure, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. And then giving so much of that to different causes. So they invest in climate education, climate action, and activism, and innovation in the apparel and textile industry, which is very, very cool. That's amazing. I know. It is. It's really, it's it's cool. And, you know, I have a, an investigative journalism problem. <laughs> so anytime someone tells me something like this, I'm like, bullshit. Right, right, it. right. So I totally... So you you followed the trail? Yeah, they've got the receipts. It's pretty great. So go to askovfinlayson.com to get yours. That's A-S-K-O-V-F like Frank, I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N.com. I noticed a big conversation happening around reproduction and climate this month. I'm going to start with that conversation as it relates to Australia. I saw a lot of articles about what it was like to be pregnant in Australia. And there are a lot of pregnant women calling all hospitals and asking for special certificates to give to the airlines so that they could fly. They were asking to be induced and asking, is my baby safer inside of me or outside of me? Because while everybody else is running around with masks or breathing masks, there are precious few such masks that you can give to an infant that like legit hasn't learned really how to breathe or what breathing is. At the moment, and so, lungs are the last thing to develop in a baby, right? Yeah, They're like the most vulnerable part of a, a new child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sending them out into like just straight up unbreathable air feels kind of unconscionable. And another thing I noticed in a lot of these articles was that there was a spike in vasectomies in Australia, and I found that really interesting because often when we talk about birth control, period, but in particular birth control as it relates to climate. It's always about women. It's always about regulating women's reproductive choices. And it was interesting to see men starting to take some agency with this. And then I started to see all of these other uh, two, in particular, very strong articles from men about the importance of having children during the climate crisis or what it means to be a father and to raise children during the climate crisis. The first one is from Jedediah Britton Purdy, um, and it's called The Concession to Climate Change That I Will Not Make, and it appeared in The Atlantic. I'm just going to read a quick section from it. On one level, my answer to how can you have a child now is simple. I have never been tempted to think we should all stop having children and disappear. Part of the reason climate change is so terrible is that the threat it poses to human life and culture, and I want to help them go on. 
So the question I ask myself every day is how to explain this suffering world to a newcomer. This is what I find myself saying to this little person who can't quite understand me yet. The world is good for all the bad in it, a good place. And you are good, full of joy, born innocent, but you are not good for the world. When you do all the things you will do, work, play, love, you will be breaking down its systems, making it unlivable. And there is very little that you personally can do about it. What kind of welcome is that? It's a truthful one, at least, but it raises more questions. So, yeah, I, I mean, he goes on in the piece to to talk about, you know, he's not sorry for having a child. He's, you know, talks about how he's not a young father. Um, you know, he made this decision very carefully and very strategically, but it's, it's complicated. He's worried about what he's, what is he going to say to his child? And the next piece was from James Murray in Business Screen, who's, you know, his kids are a little bit older. And he talks about, you know, what he is doing actively as a father to two young boys. And Mira, would you mind reading this one? Sure. It is the smallest of samples, but when I look at the initial stages of my son's education, something remarkable appears to be happening. The desire for a mix of sensitivity and resilience appears to be everywhere. Empathy, curiosity, and self-awareness appears to be at the heart of everything they do. These small people greet each other with hugs and smiles each morning (laughs) without the slightest judgment or self-consciousness. They are better at interrogating both their emotions and the world around them than most adults. Nothing is being beaten out of anyone. Yeah. So where do we start? Where do we start and what do we become? And where do you get power from learning how to, that you, Yeah. there's so many things that are going to be out of your control, every single one of us, but how do you learn how that you have some agency? You know, that's what we want to teach every, every little being, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I just think this is an interesting trend to see men talk about the act of fathering more because I think it kind of speaks more to the collective uh, responsibility to children, right? Like, I I don't know. Do you have children? No, I don't. I, yeah. I decided not to have children a long, long time ago, and I ended up marrying someone who has children. So I've got two awesome stepdaughters, but I, oh. um, I do not have children of my own. Yeah, I um I don't have children. I talk all the time about like that doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to children because I I don't think you have to have children to have children. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I love being an auntie. Yes, being <laughs> the world needs more aunts. Need it really does. Aunts. And I'm really fucking yes. good at it. And I think that's a really beautiful thing to bring into the climate conversation. I think it really is what resilience is is all about. And so like ex- Expanding our networks and our communities and welcoming one another. I think that's just, yeah, yeah, really necessary right now. Yeah. And so that's what can be, you know, when we're thinking about kids. I mean, it's just such a such an absolutely personal thing. It's mm-hmm. it's something that it's something that you should want, mm-hmm. ideally, and have the choices to be able to make that choice. And yeah. and then if you want it, then you then you have the opportunity to, to, to give these kids. Yeah. Teach them. And yeah. make them into into um, hopefully people that can handle mm-hmm. what's ahead because what's yeah. ahead is is really going to be tough in it a lot is. of respects. And so, um, but I get why people. I mean, I, I I didn't want to have children because I just felt like there was other work to do and other places I wanted to put my energy. But I think you're absolutely right that there's so many other ways that you can have impact. 
So another trend I noticed is even beyond reproduction and fatherhood, I saw a couple of men really grappling with the hope trope. (laughs) I'm sure you know what I mean when Mm -hmm. I say the the hope trope. Mm -hmm. I am very much on record as finding this very obnoxious. This this thing that happens where anytime a climate person is on a panel or speaking somewhere, someone always asks this question, what gives you hope? And I just... I find hope to not be the necessary emotion right now. And I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah. No, I have dealt with that question all my life. I think I was cynical from a very young Mm. age for some reason I don't fully understand. But um, And I wrote about this in my book. I mean, my book was focusing on environmental stories from India and how they Mm -hmm. were facing multiple environmental major, major issues around food and water and um, reproductive rights. And I grappled with that and I found myself asking that question over and over. I would ask, I would ask my sources, I've done this. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I've completely been guilty of like that question, like, do you have hope? And, I, and there was this moment that I write about in the conclusion of my book, where I was um, in Rajasthan, and I was with a, a man who had helped basically revive his entire village, which is small scale water restoration efforts. Mm-hmm. And they basically brought this like desiccated landscape back to life. And I asked him this question. And I was just like, this like light bulb went off of like, I just keep, this is like the wrong question. Like yeah. it, I, it was, I was present, I kept in my mind, I was thinking of it as a, as a noun. Like, yes. a, like there's yes. a, is a yes or a no. Yeah. You either have hope you or, have you, or don't. you don't. Yeah. As opposed, I'm like, wait a minute, this is like, this is, it's a verb. It's an action. action verb. It's a thing that you just do and yeah. you just, you just keep doing it. And yeah. there's no, there's some victories maybe but nothing is ever permanent even yeah. you know um recognizing this and rebecca solness has written about this mm-hmm. and there's a Hope lot of other dark, i mean yeah. i've keep, i keep now uh, you know i, th- I thought it was, it was my own idea you know <laughs> i did yeah. on the top of the hill but there uh, i just keep seeing this idea and i think that mm-hmm. is the the message to drive home is that you really you just engage because what is the option what is the other option that you don't engage yeah like That's if the, you can live with that, to death. lucky you, because I can't. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the time, though, when I see people redefining hope, they redefine it to mean something that there's already a word for, and it's courage. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I hear people like hope is the thing that like you know makes me get up in the morning. Like, girl, that's courage. That's not yeah, the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So there were two pieces that I think really did a great job at dealing with this. The first one is from David Roberts in Vox called The Sad Truth About Our Boldest Climate Target. I know David from writing very detailed reports. (laughs) Well, they're articles, but they feel like reports about climate policy. So this felt like a step out of his usual zone. I thought he did a really good job with it. And I'm just going to read a quick excerpt from it. To really grapple with climate change, we have to understand it. And more than that, take it on board emotionally. That can be uncomfortable, even brutal process, because the truth is that we have screwed around and are screwing around. And with each passing day, we lock in more irreversible changes and more suffering. The consequences are difficult to reckon with, and the moral responsibility is terrible to bear. But we will never work through all those emotions and reactions if we can't talk about it, if we're only allowed chipper talk about what's still possible in climate models. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Emotional resilience is resilience. So I I Another tricky word. Yeah, exactly. Resilience. Exactly. 
I I thought he did a really good job here. Um, in the beginning, though, I do think he still used the word "we" way too liberally in this piece about like we just really dropped the ball, we we fucked up, and I I, I see where. You know, it's hard not to use that word. I find myself using it in places where I look back and say, I probably shouldn't have used that. Right. Like it's too much of a blanket statement because it erases folks in the global south who like had very little to no agency in this. It erases frontline communities in the United States. Like because the truth is, is a handful of very powerful people who got us in this place and kind of lulled the rest of us into complicity. And so. Yeah, I think we all need to start being more conscious of when we're using and abusing that word. And another great piece was from Diego Arguedas Artiz in BBC Future. Is it wrong to be hopeful about climate change? And take us away, Mira. But after reading and talking about hope for months, I have a different view. Hope hurts and feels at times pointless. Yet we have to keep doing it. It's the only way. No individual will will bend the emissions curve alone. No writer, modeling team, no forest fighter, firefighter, no environmental lawyer will carry the day. But if you're looking for hope, there might be a space in constructing something together in, in responsive hope. No single coral restoration program will heal the wounds inflicted on reefs around the world, but perhaps networks offer a way forward. That collective goal and the space of uncertainty in that perhaps is our hope. Yeah, and that is, I mean, going back to, you know, the aunties and the community part of it, that is um, working towards something forms a community in the process of doing that. And so that that has um, other, again, Rebecca Solon writes about this extensively, just about those communities being the thing that 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 happens mm-hmm. like where is the success is the success in if if the the old growth forest was saved or if this policy was implemented yes and no it's mm-hmm. also that a group of people came together and something else might have happened from that yeah i'm i'm really excited to see more emotional growth from men's voices in the climate movement because and what's really cool in all of these pieces is that they're citing a lot of women who have already talked about this. Like I saw a lot of folks citing Kate Marvel and Catherine Hayhoe and Greta Thunberg. And so they've, what that shows me is that men have been listening, which is great. You know, like that's a great source of behavioral change. I'll take it. (laughs) And being influenced by women leading the way in this and are no longer sitting on the sidelines and letting women do all of the emotional labor (laughs) of the environmental movement. And so I I find that really encouraging. Guys, keep it up. I'm, I'm really, I see the growth. I like it. Let's keep going. Okay, so for, I think for a really long time, people have kind of given the tech industry a little bit of a pass. And my theory on that has been that uh, most of the media is concentrated in New York and like (laughs) they just don't spend a lot of time with the tech guys, you know, because every time I feel like for years, like as as a West Coast journalist, I would see these stories come out in like the New Yorker or New York Magazine or whatever that was like, did you know tech guys are mostly libertarian. And I'm like, yeah, I fucking knew. Yes, I did. Yes, we all knew. Hire someone in California, please. Get out of New York. 
Yes. I was just, I was like, ah, but, um, you know, the, the, the whole tech industry has been very good at sort of proclaiming we are saving the world. And for a long time, people just sort of believed it. And there was a big access journalism problem in tech too, where, you know, they would refuse to talk to you if you ever wrote anything remotely negative about them. So a lot of, um, a lot of journalists kind of played by that game for a while. And just in the last, I would say five years, you're starting to really see that go away. There's been some really good critical reporting on Tesla, for example, which was not happening in the first 10 years of that company. But I think also you're seeing on the climate front, you're seeing employees actually out these companies for their relationship with the oil and gas industry. So you had in just the last couple months, you had uh, Amazon, Google and Microsoft all had kind of big employee uprisings around this stuff. And then, um, you know. Microsoft, of course, like put out its net zero by 2030 thing. But then when asked if they were going to stop, you know, funding oil conferences said no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's probably still some more work to be done there. But I think it's, it's I don't know, it just seems to me like I'm starting to all of a sudden see this explosion in, in like tech and climate stories that we hadn't really seen that much. Where do you think that's coming from? I kind of think that like as climate becomes a bigger issue in general, that all these people working at these companies, like a a lot of, I don't know, like if you've spent much time in Silicon Valley, but like I reported there for a while and like the thing, like, employees really kind of drink the Kool-Aid when they start working at these places. Like you work at Google and you believe that Google is like the best friggin' place on earth and that they, and that they're a force of good. Um, Same with, you know, Apple, I don't know about Microsoft. They're a little bit (laughs) different, but, um, but you know, like a lot of people who work in tech are somewhat idealistic and, kind of buy into the idea of technology and innovation, changing the world, solving the world's problems, all of that kind of stuff. And when they find out that, in fact, it's being used to perpetuate the same old, same old, they get mad. Um, And, you know, I think, honestly, I think that a lot of tech workers tend to, you know, have more agency. They tend to be um, better off financially, better educated, um, And, you know, feel empowered to stand up to their employers in a way that workers in a lot of other industries might not. So I think it's, yeah. So I think as you see climate becoming a thing that, you know, probably a good portion of those folks are um, passionate about and interested in, then, you know, it's it's like, oh, yeah, of course, they're going to start you know, pushing their employers to do something on it, which is interesting. I'm curious about this because I actually have not heard that much about these stories. A little more about our presenting sponsor, our featured sponsor, Osco Finlayson. Their winter parka is 100% recycled insulation and shell material. And it has no animal products. And I don't know if I've mentioned this already, but it is extremely warm. Like you will be yes. super toasty in this thing. I made the mistake of wearing it on a 42 degree day, like one of those uncommonly or not even uncommonly, but unseasonably warm days here in New York. And I was straight up mm-hmm. sweating. So 
<laughs> like the code is a real one, all right? And I, I know I yeah. mentioned the pockets already, but there is a pocket in this thing that blocks your cell phone signal. So like, let's say maybe you need to write an essay and not be on Twitter. You could put your phone in that pocket and you're not on Twitter. Like maybe mm -hmm. you need that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's like a child control. <laughs> I need that. It's so sad. Like I could, I could very easily just put my phone in a drawer or a separate room. Yeah, you could. But you in could fact, turn it off. I need, I basically need the coat for that pocket. Yeah, you could also just not check Twitter like an adult. <laughs> but fuck that. Use the pocket. What a great idea. That's such a good idea. It is. So go to askafinlayson.com. That is A-S-K-O-V-F-I-N-L-A-Y-S-O-N.com to get your coat while winter is still here. Now let's dig into our listener questions. We've gotten a couple of good ones over the past month. So we're going to pick two for the day and keep the feature going. So please send us your climate storytelling questions to hot takes plural at criticalfrequency.org. And here's the first question. So this one came in just a couple of weeks ago. So he says, in the context of the overwhelming, overrepresented white guy writing about the world's problems from a position of racial, economic, college-educated privilege, how would you suggest one approaches independent writing on climate without being another white climate dude in the crowd? Mm. So this guy wants to be aware That's of his privilege, question. wants to be part of the conversation, but doesn't want to be in the way. What do we think? We need everybody yes. talking about this. <laughs> exactly. I think all voices are welcome. And I think that there just needs to be, I mean, I can, he's acknowledging that he recognizes that he's this is a complicated um issue but he needs to write his his whatever he's finding as his story I right mean, this is not um an an acknowledgement i think is the part that has been mm -hmm. missing a lot yeah i always right. write other people's stories as a journalist yeah um when i'm when i'm writing my own story it's an essay and it's a personal story so People need to write their own stories, but I do hope that we can still make space for people who are curious and care about someone who is different from them, mm -hmm. that that's allowed. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think that there it feels like sometimes that space is really hard and then people yeah. don't want to write about anything but their own story. And then that can be the a little bit so too smaller. narcissistic. It gets smaller. And so, you know, I rally for a larger voice, but also... Going back to like almost that what we were talking about earlier about uh, the infrastructure, we need to make the infrastructure where all the voices that traditionally have not been being heard mm -hmm. can be heard. Yeah. And that that happens much quicker and easier. And that's an infrastructural problem that we have within media, within p many groups that are talking about the environment and fighting for the environment. And so, um, yeah. I would say, yeah. you know, weaponize your privilege. So as yeah. as a white guy with, you know, whatever, like he goes into a lot about where he is situated in the world because of his privilege. So weaponize it, right? Like there are people who are going to listen to you who would never listen to me. And by the same token that I just frankly don't want to talk to. So you can go into those rooms <laughs> yeah. that I am not welcome in and that I saw I don't want to go in and talk to those people and you can bring a certain perspective to it and remind yourself at all times that you're you're never speaking for me. You're speaking to mm. your own, to this group of people and reminding them of 
the sins that have brought us here, right? So like you have a window into going on, like I'm just going to pick on Joe Rogan, right? Like you can go on the Joe Rogan show and remind him that colonialism bought the continent crisis in a way that I can't, right? So you can use that. You can also pass the mic in times where it just doesn't feel appropriate for you to tell, you know, the story of an indigenous community. Like you can pass that story on, but it is If we find ourselves in a position where it's only women caring about women, where it's only people of color who care about people of color, we never get anywhere, right? Like you can sort of use your privilege and blaze a new path for white men. And of course, the most important thing is to listen, to listen to people other than you. So, yeah, I love that weaponize. Go be be Jane Fonda. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. Like, I just want to add a tiny thing that is that um, I, I I continue to see a kind of an issue here where where a lot of white men are taking the like, hey, don't take over so much thing as, hey, don't get involved at all. And I, I think there's a large spectrum of possibilities between being in charge and not being involved at all. And, like, I would encourage white men to seek those opportunities, you know? Like, you can you can be part of the collective, man. Like, you don't have to be the standout star or the person in charge or the narrator of the story to be involved and to do stuff. Okay, and we have one more question that Mira's going to read. What can an artist do to help the climate movement? Have you seen examples of an image or a piece of visual storytelling that really took off? If so, how was it distributed? This is great. I mean, going back to that earlier point of that climate change has just entered so much of the creative um, artistic world in a way that I feel like really Mm -hmm. wasn't there just even three to five years ago. Um, Yeah. One piece that struck out for me that has has stuck with me for a long time was actually back from 2007. And this was Eve Mosier's high water line installation in New York. Mm -hmm. So she went around with one of those chalk lines that they use on baseball fields. Mm -hmm. And she used and pardon me, I admit this is like the the journalist and the science geek, but she was using like um, uh, uh, old topographic uh, maps. She was using satellite imagery. She was using data from uh, NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies at Columbia University um, to figure out basically what is the the 100-year flood mark. And she just walked around the city with putting down this blue chalk line showing it. So it was just weaving, you know, over curbs and through <laughs> all these places. Um, I love that because it, it brought together the science and it was like so interactive. She said people were stopping and asking her what she's doing. And yeah. um, so there's this like, it's much more than just like looking at an image, which can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. But it there was like, a, again, going back to that community and conversations and actual human face-to-face engagement. And then the really fascinating part was that when 2012, when Sandy hit, it basically followed that line, yeah. you know, and she's like, you know, she she was quoted as saying, like, I didn't want I didn't want to be right mm. about this. Like these pieces of art that draw on the science, but create something bigger and encourage conversations, I think, are the ones that are are most powerful. Yeah. And when I first heard this question, I immediately thought of the Black Power movement of the 1960s and 70s and how in the Black Panther movement, art was a huge part of it. And like sort of like all of these visual artists, like using their talents to sort of bring people to the movement. And it reminded me of this quote that I love from Tony K. Bambera, where she says, 
the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm. And I think that that is the role, right? So like, I think art can be used to spark inspiration, to sort of spark momentum. I remember the installation that was done at Storm King Sculpture Park in upstate New York um, that um, all, all of it tackled climate change because art has a way of putting climate in your face in a way that is both approachable and undeniable. Virginia Hanusik is a, um, a really great photographer and she does these beautiful photographs of Louisiana. And I'm, I'm originally from Mississippi, nearby Louisiana. And she showed me one of them on her phone that just haunted me ever since. And like, I just recently bought it. And what she does in these, in her artwork is show how perilous and vulnerable these places are. You can pass by them a million times and not quite get it. But in the photograph, it really struck me how vulnerable mm. Louisiana was. So I think there's a lot more work and a lot more ground to be covered in the art space. Yeah, and Varshini Prakash, I just listened to her talking with Ezra Klein um, mm-hmm. on his podcast, and he, she talks about the role of singing, of song, within the Sunrise Movement as another way, again, hearkening yeah. back to civil, to rights. civil rights movement yeah. and the, the, the strength that can come from that and the unification and a place where you can express both grounding mm-hmm. and anger. You know, yeah. It can go both ways. Absolutely. Now it's time for a section we're calling our groundbreakers. These are pieces that we feel charted new territory in a bold new way. They either approached the story in a creative way or they broke a really important story. So, Mary, do you want to read from this Eric Holthouse piece in The Correspondent? Yeah. So this piece was really great. It's called, In 2030, We Ended the Climate Emergency, and Here's How. I love this because it interweaves policy actions, activism, and collective emotional growth all into one narrative. And he does it step by step in this way that I've just really never seen before. He's kind of, this is what we did in 2020. This is what we did in 2021 and so on and so forth until we get to 2030 Uh and we ended it, right? And so I just want to, my favorite year in it was 2023. And this is what he wrote for that year. We will criminalize and delegitimize the fossil fuel industry. Fossil fuel executives will be tried for crimes against humanity. Ecocide tribunals will hold those to account for making parts of Earth uninhabitable. We will march through the streets of our coastal cities and along the shores of the future seas in solidarity and celebration as our oppressors are held to justice. We will realize we have lost so much, but there is still so much more worth fighting for. We will prioritize our own psychological and emotional resilience. We'll take walks by the river. We'll visit our friends. Yeah, I I love how he weaves all of those levers together and makes it feel doable by breaking it out by the years. Last episode, when we did the 2019 wrap-up, we talked about the essay by Hayes Brown, The End Times Are Here and I'm at Target. And what he talks about there is, what's the point of an apocalypse without a rapture, right? Like if mm-hmm. nothing better is coming, what's the point of getting worked up about this? And Eric really tries to answer that question of how do we build a world that's not only just like livable, but better in this piece. So I thought that was kind of like groundbreaking. And I want to see more of this, more of imagining what the future can be, because I think that's what writers do really well is what artists do really well. So 
Yeah, and so far we've only really seen that play out in the apocalyptic scenarios, you know? Since uh, Mira knows the year and climate conversations piece, how about we have her read that one? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I I just love this. I mean, I was following Emily Rabito's Twitter feed where she was basically just documenting throughout the entire year. um, She was documenting how people were seeing climate change effects in their own lives. So this gets to this really fundamental question about that there's been a long perception that climate change is something that will happen down the road. And yeah. and we are right now in the moment when the realization is coming to everybody mm-hmm. that, no, it is here and it is now and it is us. And so this was really just like wonderful snippets. And she, she framed the whole thing around food, which mm-hmm. I just absolutely loved. She published a piece. So I'm just going to read a little bit here. Sunday, March 17th. On St. Patrick's Day, Kathy, who'd prepared the traditional corned beef and cabbage, conversed about the guest from the botanical garden in her master gardening class, who lectured on shifting growing zones, altering what could be planted in central New Jersey, and when. Tuesday, March 19th, Sheila, who brought weed coquita to the tipsy (laughs) tea party, (laughs) said that when people ask her, what are you Hondurans and why are you at the border? She says, Americans are just future Hondurans. Monday, March 25th. Matt recalled vultures in the trees of Sugarland, Texas, hunting dead animals that had drowned in Hurricane Harvey, during which he'd had difficulty fording flooded streets to reach his mother's nursing home. Hmm. So there are these beautiful little yeah. vignettes um, that just capture so much. And there's always a sort of like a, a bomb that detonates at the end of each sentence yeah. where you, you don't know where you're going. Yeah. And then yeah. she takes you somewhere amazing. Yeah, yeah. So there's another piece I, I want to talk about in, because I think it brought something different to the intergenerational conversation around climate. It's from Laura McGann in Vox. And it's called Baby Boomers, You Can Still Be Heroes in the Story of Climate Change. It's never easy for governments to prioritize the future over the present, which has been the trouble with climate change. It requires a political non-starter to prioritize future generations over the energy needs of the present. The best chance we have to break this political rule is your enormous sway. Other generations are leading the way, proposing solutions and working together. They need your generation to use your power to change our politics and help save us all. So obviously here, this is a, a letter to the baby boomer generation to join the, the political fight. And I thought it was interesting because it kind of comes on the heels of the David Roberts piece where he talks about the one we read from earlier, where he also talks about the need for political will and how political will is not a nice to have for for the climate conversation. And we know the baby boomer generation has a lot of it. Um, so I, th- I, I thought it was cool to see like a welcome gesture to the baby boomer generation because I feel like they're often uh, demonized and marginalized in the climate conversation. but. Where I started to find this piece to be kind of problematic was the way she used a lot of blanket language to talk about the safe and comfortable life that the baby boomer generation has had, because that is not true for black baby boomers. That is not true for lots of baby boomers of color. Like when I think of the baby boomer generation, I think of the generation that as children integrated the schools. The generation that like grew up hearing stories about Emmett Till being gruesomely murdered. I think of, you know, the generation that as teenagers marched on, marched on Washington and 
did Freedom Rise and like legit risked their lives and wrote the playbook for everything that we need to do for the climate movement. So I I take issue with them being demonized in this way of like, you've had everything handed to you. Like I call bullshit, (laughs) okay? Um, That was not my family story. (laughs) If she had just written white baby boomers, this story would have made total sense to me. Anyway, I do think it brings still brings something important to the conversation to extend a welcoming hand to the baby boomer generation. But when we talk about any generation, I think we need to understand the intersectionality of it. And not everyone had access to the same opportunities in that whole generation. So, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. There's my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) This Valentine's Day, get her what she really wants, a livable future. And by her, I mean Mother Earth. Join a climate strike. Donate to Sunrise or Zero Hour. Cut your own carbon footprint. Troll a fossil fuel company on social media. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your mom. Talk to your dad. I don't really give a shit. Just do something. Because nothing's sexier than climate action. Nothing. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It is time for our standout pieces of the month. Each episode, we each choose a climate story that was just our favorite for whatever completely subjective reason. There's no criteria. There's no rubric. It's just something that we love. And I will let our guests go first. Fabulous. I'm 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 cribbing a little bit because I'm taking a December story, but um, it's okay. We'll it, allow it. It was uh, Genevieve fun. Gunther's piece, "What Climate Change Tells Us About Being Human," and it was in Scientific American. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all that long, but I just loved how she got into the the really like the fundamental concept about like we have the the, the big picture part of thinking around climate change. If the pre-modern West cast European men as the masters of nature, dominating putatively lowlier creatures by virtue of their uniquely transcendent intellect, the technical revolution of the industrial and post-industrial eras seems only to confirm this view. We grow abundant food. We perform complex and delicate surgeries with hyperdextrous robots. Our tiny handheld computers enable us to interact instantly with people on the other side of the planet or access nearly the full archive of the world's information. We fly like gods across oceans and even ascend toward the stars, landing on the moon and sending home images of Pluto. We have even cheated death, extending average global lifespan by decades. Looking back on what human beings have achieved, you can easily imagine a future of ever more prosperity and freedom. Climate change exposes this imagined future to be a profound illusion. It shows that in geological time and space, we have not transcended our materiality at all. We are fully embedded in and intertwined with Earth's planetary systems as a species. The heart of it is that we have to do this very tricky dance between recognizing our human limitations in the face of the natural world that we inhabit, the actual planet, that we are highly limited in this regard, and at the same time believe that we have the power to transform. So she's exploring this idea that we have to like do these two very competing ideas. We have Mm -hmm. to like think about the fact that we are limited and we are at the whim, or not the whim, we are at the the mercy Mm -hmm. of the natural world. Yeah. That it, it is finite, and yeah. we have asked too much of it, and we have to recognize that. And at the same time, we have to take the one 
kind of amazing thing about a human, which is that we have the ability to tell ourselves stories. And mm-hmm. so she re- refers to Yuval Harari's Sapiens book, which is all about, you know, like we create fictions all the time. Yeah. Money. History, all these, all these things are just stories that we all decide to buy into or not, Mm -hmm. and um, so we have to both accept our limitations on the planetary level and also believe that we have the power to write a new story. Mm. Yeah, so I thought that was just in terms of big ideas. I was really taken with that. Yeah, I think that's a great you know meditation and intention for for twenty twenty. So my favorite of the month comes from Amy Brady, and she started this new series of essays that she's going to be doing at Catapult Magazine, and this was the first one. It's called, Here Comes the Sun Was an Anthem of Hope. Now it's a Reminder of Climate Change. But what I didn't understand then and would not realize until almost 20 years later when I read the first part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment report was the extent of the damage. Since reading that report, nothing about my life, not my work, my relationships, the ways I eat or sleep or consume pop culture has felt the same. One of the more unexpected changes has to do with my relationship with the past. Every day, as news reports about climate change become more threatening, I grow more nostalgic for the places and objects of my childhood that feel increasingly imperiled. The Florida beaches I vacationed on as a kid the fall leaves that will become less vibrant as the ancient cycle of the seasons grows haywire. Most startling, though, is how the songs and movies and TV shows I loved back then, things we might expect to be safe from climate devastation, read differently today. Take those corny 1960s beach party movies I used to watch with my mother, the ones where Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello twisted and shouted on pristine sandy shores. They were pure sugary escapism, no real plot, just pretty faces and poppy dance tunes. Even before reading the IPCC report, these movies felt like relics from another era. Now they feel like fossils from another epoch. So I I love this because I've been sort of struggling with this too. I'll hear songs I used to love as a kid and you know, my mom is a, a baby boomer. So like I grew up listening to Stevie Wonder and The Temptations and all that sort of music. And there, there's so many songs in there that sort of take nature for granted or, you know, at the stability of nature for granted, right? Like I think of um, songs like, um, I think it's Carol Carpenter, um, The End of the World. Like why do the birds go on singing? Don't they know it's the end of the world? You don't love me anymore? Mm-hmm. And like I think about that now and like a lot of those birds are dead, girl. <laughs> And um, like it really is the end of the world. Yeah, but then I I just heard Mercy, Mercy Me, Marvin Mm -hmm. Gaye's song. Uh I was like, it's still spot on. It is. Yeah, a lot of those, like the protest songs, like they still hold water. Yeah, it's so... So she's talking about uh, Here Comes the Sun is like, no, it sort of becomes menacing even in the face of the climate crisis. So, and just looking back at, at these just ordinary things that you can't even escape into anymore because... There is no escaping this crisis. It seeps into everything. It's all once you have climate vision and you see the world through through a lens colored with the climate crisis, you can't unsee it, and it just gets into everything. Okay. Well, I picked this Rolling Stone piece on the radioactive. Um, well, how radioactive the the sort of briny waste from fracking is, and 
I picked it because it just, it was, he did such a good job reporting this out. And it's something that's like, I've seen little bits and bobs on over the years, but have known that it's a big problem and have been kind of waiting to see the big story on it. And I feel like this, this guy, Justin Noble did that. And I also thought that he did a great job of, um, of kind of instantly humanizing the subject so that it wasn't like about, oh, there's radioactive waste in all this stuff. It was like, oh, God, this guy, Pete, who's been driving this truck for decades now, um, is, like, probably riddled with cancer. Uh, his, like, his body is eating itself, you know, and his bosses lied to him about the exposure that he was facing. And, you know, so it made it really um, – I don't know. I think it made it it made it really human and real for people um, versus kind of just talking about it as you know just the facts, ma'am. So so I'll um I'll read a little bit from it here. In a squat rig fitted with a five thousand gallon tank, Peter crisscrosses the expanse of farms and woods near the Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania border, the heart of a region that produces close to one-third of America's natural gas. He hauls a salty substance called brine, a naturally occurring waste product that gushes out of America's oil and gas wells to the tune of nearly one trillion gallons a year, enough to flood Manhattan almost shin high every single day. At most wells, far more brine is produced than oil or gas, as much as 10 times more. It collects in tanks, and like an oil and gas garbage man, Peter picks it up and hauls it off to treatment plants or injection wells, where it's disposed of by being shot back into the earth. One day in 2017, Peter pulled up to an injection well in Cambridge, Ohio. A worker walked around his truck with a handheld radiation detector, he says, and told him he was carrying one of the, quote, hottest loads he'd ever seen. It was the first time Peter had heard any mention of the brine being radioactive. So... The story goes on to like, you know, this guy ends up collecting samples of this brine because he wants to test it. And he he says, he's like this very pragmatic guy. He's like, well, I want to cover myself because like if I get sick in 10 years, I want like proof that it was because of this so that they pay my medical bills. I'm like, oh, God, America. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's really it's a real scorcher of a piece. Highly recommend. Very good. Well, thanks, Mira. I know we um, we always try to take less time and it never works. So I appreciate you taking the time. It never works. It never works. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure talking with you both. So that was January, just January. <laughs> I know. See what I mean? No chill. The climate story has no chill whatsoever. I know. It's a good thing we're going bi-weekly in February. I hope we can get on top of it. (laughs) Speaking of which, our next episode is actually going to be a live show. Um, It's going to be at Amherst College, which is where I almost went to college, believe it or not. Um, And I will be joined by Wynn Stevenson, who is a climate storytelling hero of mine. So really looking forward to that. I'm so excited about that, although I am really sad that I won't be able to make it to join you guys. Yeah, I know. You're too busy running a media empire. 
<laughs> it's true. It's true. But I'm excited to be in New York next week and yeah. I'll be at your panel. I'm going to go to your panel at Columbia. So that'll be awesome. Yeah. On February 11th, I'll be doing a panel at Columbia University where I am now writer in residence at the Earth Institute. And on the panel, I'll be with Catherine Wilkinson and Kendra Pierre-Louis and Kate Marvel and it is free and open to the public and Amy will be there in the flesh so you Mm -hmm. should come and gawk at her Um, please don't gawk at me also (laughs) I'll be heckling the panel so that's fine (laughs) I'm just kidding (laughs) but do come to the panel and say hello and also a quick reminder that Drilled is back we're in season 3 we're looking at the 100 plus year history of big oil's big propaganda machine mm-hmm. and the specific uh, we're calling it our madmen season cuz we're really looking at some of the specific people who kind of built this apparatus mm-hmm. and we also just launched drillednews.com which is a climate accountability reporting site we're partnering with a bunch of folks including uh HuffPost, Grist, Earther and hopefully more soon that's awesome and Season three of Drilled is really, really good. Like, I wake up early every time it drops. Like, I'm so excited. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> In the meantime, make sure that you're following us on Twitter. You can find us at, at Real Hot Take. And you can find me at, at Mary Heckler. And you can find Amy at, at Amy Westervelt. And a big thank you to Mira for joining us on this episode. Yes. She's the greatest. She She's really so is. great. You can follow her on Twitter too at Mira Tweets. That's M E E R A Tweets. And thank you to our first and featured sponsor, Oscoke and Leeson. Can't wait uh, for you to get your coat so you can uh, join me and Style out here in New York. I know. We're going to have twin coat picks in New York. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> going to be amazing. As a reminder, all the articles we discussed are up on our Twitter feed and in our show notes. And please send your climate storytelling questions to hot takes. That's plural hot takes at criticalfrequency.org. Last reminder, if you like the show, please leave us a rating or a review in iTunes. It really does help us find new listeners. Good reviews only, people. Okay, the climate trolls have found us. Uh, Bad (laughs) reviews don't help. If you must, you can send us an email if you must. Or just no bad ratings. You know what? Just write that shit down, put it in a bottle, and leave the bottle on your dresser or some shit. Uh (laughs) Drop it into a rising ocean. No, don't do that. Okay, there's enough shit in the ocean. Um, (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) All right, that's good enough for now. We'll talk to y'all in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye.